welcome to this first episode in the Project Edward 2021 podcast. My name's James Luckhurst, and in the coming weeks, members of the Project Edward team will be joined here by some amazing people, highly experienced and well-qualified to share their thoughts on topics connected with safer road transport. If you like what you hear, by the way, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin, here's some background. The World Health Organization figures show that every 24 seconds, someone somewhere in the world dies on the road. Low-income countries have 1% of the world's vehicles, but 13% of deaths. High-income countries have 40% of the world's vehicles, but 7% of deaths. 54% of deaths are cyclists, motorcyclists and pedestrians. The UN's new Global Plan for Road Safety seeks to prevent at least 50% of road traffic deaths and injuries by 2030. Project Edward is a road safety initiative which started in 2016. Edward stands for Every Day Without a Road Death. By the way, you can find out more at projectedward.org. Underpinning Project Edward's activity this year is the SAFE system, an approach that sets up road systems to let people use them intuitively and to stay safe in the process. The SAFE system minimises the chances for mistakes by drivers, pedestrians, cyclists, any road user in fact, and aims to reduce the intensity of crashes when they do occur. And it's the aftermath of a collision that we're going to be considering in this first episode. I'm joined by Claire Hoyland, who's the project manager at the Eastern Alliance for Safe and Sustainable Transport, and also for Fire Aid. Nick Simmons is chief executive of the charity Road Peace. And Cheryl Pinner is a former police family liaison officer who's now with the law firm HCC, sponsors this year of Project Edward. So I'm going to start with Claire Hoyland. Um, Claire, let, let's get going then. Within the scope of, of post-crash care, what sort of contribution has FireAid made? Give us some sort of overview. Yes, of course. Well, hi, everyone. And thanks, James, for inviting me on. So FireAid has contributed to the scope of post-crash care, both through the delivery of essential equipment and professional training to over 40 countries around the world. Um, what we do is we donate um, secondhand road traffic rescue sets, first aid equipment, water rope rescue equipment, much more to countries that need it. Um, we've provided hundreds of sets of personal protective equipment to thousands of firefighters uh, alongside thousands of hours of training to over 5,000 emergency service personnel. Alongside that, we've donated hundreds of modern vehicles, um, ambulances, um, that are all sent overseas to help reduce incident response times. I think this equipment and training has sped up the development of emergency services in these countries um, that we work by a number of years. And just for an example of this, a good example, would be our work in the Republic of Moldova, where FireAid and its members, including East, have been working since 2014. At the time, in 2014, we carried out a scoping visit. The country had 144 fire appliances and only 8% of these were actually equipped to extricate a casualty from a road traffic collision. And more than 9 out of 10 of these were over 13 years old and they actually didn't meet the government's own terms of service. So during the three years that followed, FireAid and its members delivered 45 modern fire trucks and five ambulances to the fire service in Moldova. Alongside that, we delivered 63 cutting sets, 
Um, these are sets that extricate trapped victims from cars. And alongside these nations, we trained over 1,200 firefighters, so they were able to respond to road traffic collisions. Um, the emergency services in Moldova estimate that this project directly saved the lives of over 200 people in the three years. These people would not have otherwise been able to be extricated from the crash. The project also helped reduce the fire service's average road crash response times from an hour to less than 15 minutes. So that really has dramatically improved the country's emergency response capacity. So alongside that example of equipment and donations that we've provided, FireAid are also a member of the UN Road Safety Collaboration, which James, you mentioned in the introduction. Uh, we sit on Pillar 5 of the post-crash working group. And our aim is to raise awareness of the importance of emergency services in responding to road crashes around the world. And FireAid and its members are the only representatives in the UN Road Safety Collaboration who work in the area of what we call immediate post-crash response, which is the emergency services. Can you give us some idea of what kind of are the priorities in the training that's given? Because is that driven by the needs of, of medics who specify what sort of state they want somebody in in order to have the best chance of survival? Or is it driven by the need to get roads open more quickly? It's very much dependent on the country. So when we start a project, we carry out a scoping visit, which is a full review of the country's post-crash response. And in each country, that might vary dramatically. We've noticed recently that in Lebanon, they have a really big issue with emergency service personnel um, being killed or injured at the scene of a crash because their crash management processes aren't great. And so that would be a priority for us in, um, in training there to try and ensure that, you know, as step one, the emergency services personnel are safe, so they're able to carry out their work. In other countries, yes, it could be more focused on training the healthcare workers to give initial first response, to make sure the ambulances are properly equipped to take casualty to hospital. But even in other countries like Tajikistan, where we work, very often along the Panamera Highway, which is a really dangerous, I think one of the world's most dangerous roads, on the side of cliffs, rivers at the bottom of these cliffs. One of the sort of priorities here is to actually enable the emergency service workers to get to the casualty. So the training there would be in rope rescue and uh, search and rescue even maybe to actually enable them to reach the casualty before we take them to hospital, before we can give them any sort of treatment. The, the training needs and the equipment needs are so different from each country and so we have to start um, with a review of the country's system to be able to give the correct aid and the correct project awareness really. How suitable, how exportable is UK know-how in this regard? Perhaps you can give me some examples. Yes, so I think the UK is well known for having well-trained and equipped emergency services. One of the UK's sort of crowning uh, training schemes is JESSEP. It's the Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Protocol. I hope I've said that right. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful. So that's just one example of the world-class working practices that the emergency services in the UK use. That approach is scalable. It is a standard approach to best practice in multi-agency working. But I think it's also really important to note here that some of the methods and equipment that we use in the UK might not always be relevant to every country. For example, the hydraulic extrication equipment that we use here in the UK are useless in some parts of the world where they have no access to electricity or they cannot afford to maintain the equipment after it's delivered. So again, it comes back to the needs assessment that we carry out at the beginning of each project to ensure that we don't just export UK know-how without an understanding on whether that is actually the right approach. 
there are definitely elements of the UK's approach which, combined with other methods, are, are really convenient and a really good professional knowledge to be able to export, but it doesn't always suit every country's needs. Claire Hoyland from East and FireAid, um, thank you, we'll come back to you. But if, if I may now move to talk to Nick Simmons, who's Chief Executive of Road Peace. Nick, we can't start this without referring to what happened last week, which was Andy Cox's great nine-day run for Road Peace, enormous awareness raiser. What's your reaction to that? How, how did that uh, help Road Peace? It was an absolutely incredible event. I, I suppose we're first and foremost just very, very grateful to Andy. It's been such a tough year for the charity sector in terms of, of raising revenue. So that's obviously important. But beyond that, starting that communication, getting awareness and just starting to talk about some of the issues that road crash victims are affected by. So it's been a very powerful process. And, you know, we hope that we can continue with that and um, and, and build on the um, uh, amazing beginning that, uh, that Andy's made. Now, no two fatal collisions are the same. As a victim organisation, have you identified any threads that are common to the aftermath of any crash? I suppose one of the things that we see a fatal collision is is most likely to be the worst thing that's, that's ever happened to a family. And of course, it's also completely unexpected. We talk a bit about the victim's journey uh, in terms of how people respond and cope. And what tends to happen is that there is the most awful personal experience, either a bereavement or someone has a life-changing injury. And then somehow the system manages to make that awful happening even worse in terms of how the justice system works, how the collision is investigated, how the victim feels that perhaps the perpetrator has been treated. So it, it's an incredibly complicated journey. And of course, I mean, you know, people are, are unfamiliar around it. it yes, it's a, it's a very challenging process. What help is there for people who were suddenly exposed to the, the criminal justice system and the police? They're going to be pretty nervous and unsure. I suppose one of the key things that Road Peace seek to put in place is a peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, and obviously collaboration is really important between all the parties involved in these events. But I think what our members tell us, what victims say to us, is that they find meeting someone that has been through a similar experience incredibly helpful because sometimes their starting point is that no one will understand what they're going through. So we have a helpline and we have a befriender program and, and we try and put together people that will have had a similar experience. And they find that very helpful and that moves them through through the process. The reason I talk about the victim's journey is because, as I say, people start with this awful process and, and, and then they move through uh, perhaps the, um, the justice system and, and they share experience and they share knowledge. So, so that's what we try and do. And, and then the, the relationship moves on and we start working on, on other issues like campaigning to try and prevent anybody else going through the same or a similar experience. And also remembrance is, is, is incredibly important. Sometimes I think society doesn't know how to talk about road crashes and the impact and, and perhaps we sometimes feel well it's 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 best avoided or it's best not spoken about and, and getting that balance right between encouraging people or, or letting people talk about their loved ones and their experience that's also very powerful uh, and also very effective in terms of sharing knowledge. Road Peace states, I think, the victims of crashes involving criminal convictions don't have the same rights or they don't appear to have the same rights as, as other victims of crime. 
So how is that going to change and, and who needs to drive that change? Yes, uh, that's really important. And, and look, the first thing just to acknowledge is that because I, I understand that, that sometimes people don't want to be described as victims. It's not a label they feel comfortable with. But when we talk to our members and when we talk to our supporters, that is absolutely the word that they think is appropriate and, and, and describes how they feel. And look, one of our big campaigns is Crash Not Accident. And, and the reason I mention that is because there is a slight school of thought, perhaps in the media and some organisations, that it, it, it's just an accident. It's just one of those things. And our Crash Not Accident campaign firmly disagrees with that. And, and, and we say that these things are avoidable. And, and the process of how crashes are investigated um, is really important as well. That journey becomes very, very important. Uh, Nick Simmons, thank you very much. Well, look, we've mentioned Andy Cox. We can't let the occasion go without a little bit more reference to his amazing run that he did in late May and which raised around £50,000 for road peace, 200 kilometres from the site of the first fatal road collision at Crystal Palace all the way to the National Arboretum Memorial in Staffordshire. Well, I was with Andy for a day of his run uh, and I had a chance to talk to him about where his motivation for road safety and effective roads policing came from. So I first worked in Rose Policing in 2012 where I was a superintendent in Northamptonshire, uh, heading up Rose Policing there. And I quickly realised that um, for somebody that always worked in crime, there was a real opportunity to problem solve and pre pre prevent loss of life and tackle criminality as well through, through Rose Policing that came from there. You were in the Sunday Times recently. You were comparing speeders with knife criminals. Helpful or not helpful in, in the context of what you're trying to do? Helpful in the sense that I want to draw attention to the harm that can be caused to communities, um, the loss of life that can be caused by, by speeding. Um, we have 1,800 people a year die in the UK, that's five people every day that die, 60 people seriously injured. The leading cause for that is speed. So I was trying to uh, draw a comparison between those that carry a knife and those that drive very dangerously on our roads and therefore risk loss of life for people. So you've got three wishes. Imagine your road safety fairy godmother has granted you three wishes. How would you use them wisely? So my absolute wish, of course, to end the loss of life, that's needless at the moment. We have an attitude in society, so this would be wish number one. We have an attitude in society that it's okay. It's just road death. It doesn't matter as much. I need that to change. I want people to recognise that five people dying every day is totally unacceptable and it can be prevented through safe and sensible driving, which is a core reason why they occur when we breach those standards. So which one would be societal change in terms of its perception of it and its determination to prevent that? Wish number two, greater use of, of the public reporting road crime. So we have a pretty, at times, a postcode lottery around that in the UK. So we encourage dash cam and head cam referrals in the public. We don't always have that opportunity across the country and it's indifferent as well. So I think we've got an opportunity. The police, for example, can't and all of our partner agencies in road safety cannot prevent fatal collisions on their own. They need everybody to step up. It's all our responsibility. So we have a population of 66 million. Let's galvanise them. Let's make it everybody's responsibility. So encourage public reporting across the country and allow that to happen and why do we do that because of deterrence number one so we get investigative benefits from it of course we can solve crash investigation through it we can have intelligence opportunities for it of course and all that, those other things but fundamentally i think it's deterrence because the police can't be everywhere all the time but the public can be and it can be 365 24 7 a day reporting which i think will get in the mind of the dangerous driver and make him drive safely wish free is legislation so i think I'm going to give one example of this, and this does link back to what you said around the Times article. The Times article was actually very good. It's just the headline was unfortunate because, of course, knife crime is a priority. But I was trying to draw a comparison to the way we legislate and sentence dangerous drivers and speeding drivers. It's a very, you know, we had a 163 mile an hour driver at tea time in London get a six month ban. 
and a, and a, a near 2,000 fire. It's just, in my opinion, totally unacceptable. So what are things like the hardship defence, and that is where somebody's had 12 points already on their licence, but allowed to continue to drive because they make the case to the magistrate that actually their livelihood and their family circumstance depend on them driving. Well, my, my view on that is a 12-point system, which means they've had opportunity to reflect and change their driving. Everybody knows you've got to drive safely and sensible, and it doesn't put the victim's voice as part of that consideration. And I think we need to think about the families that are bereaved, the people that are permanently disabled, and put their voice and their interests first, because those dangerous drivers have had their opportunity. So, so unfortunately, I want to be on the side of the bereaved and the, the seriously injured there, and not that driver who's claiming hardship. So I think we need a tougher approach to sentencing, which I think would act as a greater deterrence, and put victims first as well. That was Detective Chief Superintendent Andy Cox. Let's move to our third guest now, Cheryl Pinner from HCC Solicitors. Cheryl, you're very welcome. You were a family liaison officer. You've trained family liaison officers for the role. What made you do it? Thank you for the opportunity. Um, You're right. Family liaison is an additional role to your day role within the police. And when I sat down and thought, you know, why, why have I done it? Why did I do the role for so many years? There's no one reason, but it's definitely built on the firm foundations of a desire to make a positive difference to a family because you know the worst thing in the world has happened to them and it's then about making actually the world a nicer place for them in as much as you can signpost, you can support, you you can show compassion to the role. And I think for me, it's a, a police side where actually the compassion really does show that we're human beings as well. It's a side of policing where you really can support people at the worst time of their, their lives. On top of that, it, it is a really rewarding role to know that during your career, you're you're assisting families in their future well-being because the worst thing has already happened to them. And when I was starting to prepare to come on your programme, I was reflecting back on some of the occasions where I dealt with families, high profile families and some where it had just made page 13 of the news. And in 2009, I won a national award for my commitment and contribution to family liaison in the country. And actually, that was part way through my career, the drive, the passion to still make a difference, not just to the families, but also to the investigation, but also to the to the other people service users. And um, when we go on and signpost support organisations that really do make a difference to the family. What are some of the golden rules that would govern all the aspects of that role? There's a number of golden rules. The first one that comes into my head would be about being respectful and being honest. Now, sometimes honesty is barbed because there's the remit of the investigation where we have investigative considerations that perhaps at the time the family want answers will override the family's need to actually get those answers. Again, integrity. Um, integrity for me is massive when we think of some of the past mistakes that we've made in investigations. We need to have that integrity. And sometimes families want to know why something has happened. And I think this is probably one of the hardest golden rules that we have to link into is sometimes we just don't know why something has happened. But for me, that open communication about explaining, we, we know our process. So it very much is about giving family choices and enabling them to make their own their own choices but very much linking into the family needs as well as the investigative needs. Did you find your job got easier 
as you became more experienced at it? I don't think I'd say it got easier. It certainly got from a position of knowing where to signpost people to, from a position of knowing actually how investigations typically worked out, then definitely you could say it got easier. But I think the fact that no two families are the same never makes it an easy job. I think the fact that diversity and cultural issues don't make it an easy role. So I think experience gives you the knowledge of signposting about explaining something like perhaps the coronial process, the investigation. But when you're dealing with people's real raw pain, I don't think you can become complacent at all with what you know. And it goes back to their needs. We really need to meet their needs as well as the investigative needs. But for me, very much signposting makes a huge difference in how my experience was dealing with families following a bereavement. You mentioned meeting their needs. Every family will have different needs. So how do you understand what those needs are on a case-by-case basis? Perhaps one of my strengths would be listening and actually hearing what their needs are. Because in the first instance, we're so embroiled in the investigation process that sometimes we don't hear their needs. It, it does make a massive difference once we've got got the families um, to understand our process because they're typically never walked that route that before. They don't know what the, the route is ahead of them. Cheryl Pinner, thank you so much. I'd like us all to have a, a chat about a couple of topics now, particularly trying to, I suppose, get a blueprint, perhaps from each of you, for an effective post-crash response, bearing in mind as a key pillar of the safe system, post-crash care includes you know, physical, psychological and, and legal needs to deal with. So what are the priorities? What's the blueprint? And I'd invite Nick Simmons to kick us off. I think from our perspective, in terms of a potential blueprint, yes, that peer-to-peer support is an incredibly important starting point. Everyone takes a different amount of, of, of time to move through the process. One of the key things that Road Peace seek to deliver to road crash victims, a resilience program. So we, we try and ensure that they have some coping mechanisms, uh, some tools uh, to deal with some of the, uh, the the challenges that they find in their personal situation. So that's really important. And then typically we find that perhaps, as, as I may have mentioned before, people are so, having been through this awful experience, they're so keen to try and do whatever they can to prevent anybody else having to endure what they've endured. So the campaigning issue becomes really important. But there's a challenge around that because, you know, when I look at road peace and and, and the issues that we feel we we need to campaign on, there are 30 or 40 key things. And and, and that's a lot. And and, and that message, it doesn't always get heard. uh, And there's a real challenge around engaging with the media to make sure that um, those stories are told and, and those campaigning points are made. So there is a challenge and we perhaps need to focus on some key areas uh, and actually from our perspective as an organization collision investigation is is absolutely key it's the starting point and and, and when that's done consistently thoroughly well and fairly then it then it just has a very positive impact and if the reverse happens then the consequences can be very very challenging so it's trying to pick those campaigns and and, and work on them and, and make sure that they create awareness and, and, and deliver it. And, and then again, as I've said, just in terms of this um, this journey, remembrance is really, really important and providing an opportunity for, for people to come together and 
share their experience with others and and remember their loved ones. So I, I think those are the, the, the some of the key things on our journey. Claire Hoyland, can I come to you and maybe you have a, a blueprint or perhaps a, a list of what should be available at the very minimum? Yes, yeah, so I would say um, the two main areas which are the key areas what I would focus on for emergency service would be that communication is key. So communications at all levels between the bystander and the call centre, between the emergency services, um, both at the incident and after the incident, between first responders and the hospital, between the emergency services and the general public. Um, And I know communication just sounds a simple solution, but actually there's so many parties involved at the scene of a crash and during the whole post-crash process that is often a really big challenge to tackle, um, but a very important key starting point. The other area which I say would be would be very key is the coordination, which is essential. So all emergency services should work together. And again, I think it sounds like a simple solution, but very often they don't. Um, and this, this would involve carrying out joint training Uh, joint response, sharing resources and sharing lessons learnt to continuously improve the service that they're offering to the public. Cheryl Pinner, traditional road safety focused on correcting human behaviour. We don't hear very much about that anymore. Do you think that's still important? And and if so, how can we make it more prominent? I do think it's important. Um, It could go right back to training, thinking about people taking their driving um, lessons, their driving tests. And I think as human beings, it's a valuable consideration that actually we do make errors of judgment. However, the bereaved necessarily won't acknowledge that their loved one was killed by um, either their own loved one's mistake, error, or by another driver's error. Sometimes I think, you know, genuine errors do happen, but a lot of it is informed choices. We know if we put our foot down, we're doing 60 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour driving zone. We know if we take that extra drink, it's going to take us over the drink drive limit. The same with things like drugs. So, you know, whilst human beings are responsible for driving a vehicle, we are going to be making those mistakes, if that's the correct word. Nick Simmons, how helpful is that word mistake, do you think, in the context of a, of a potentially fatal or actual fatal collision? I think the most important thing is learning from the causes to prevent that Occurrence, and you know, I mentioned our crash on accident, um, and, and, and you know, we need to be realistic about this. But I think it comes back to responsibility. And look, one of the challenges we find as an organisation when we talk to people uh, around road danger reduction, uh, and particularly young people who are such a, a key demographic from our point of view in trying to make sure that they um, drive and behave on the road network as responsibly as they can. But people don't think it'll happen to them. And people think that their behaviour, that their driving is is kind of okay. And and the point that was just made before, you know, if people speed, it has a real impact. If people take that drink, it has a real, real impact. So we we need to find a way of, of, as a wider community, just looking out and taking responsibility for the other users of the of the road network and 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 working to make those areas as safe as they possibly can and and, you know just the final thing on this point to make whilst we are very very 
respectful and and and, and grateful for the um, for the sort of the, the road safety sector. Sometimes these these organisations can sort of set standards uh, and set targets around the sort of you know numbers of. I mean, you know, look, five people a day die because of a road crash. Thousands face serious injuries, and the only acceptable target is zero, isn't it? You know, vision zero is just so important, and we all need to work towards that um, over a realistic timescale. Nick, thank you. Final word to Claire Hoyland. Um, I guess it's inevitable. Humans do make mistakes, and that will happen. But what we try to advocate is vision zero, as Nick says. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. There's a lot of other enforcements that could come into place that could improve that uh, and awareness of issues such as seatbelts and lower speeds, a shift away from the reliance on private cars, more campaigns for uh, safe pedestrian and cycle routes and affordable public transport. So whilst yes I do agree um, humans will make mistakes but I also think that we shouldn't pay with our lives for that and, and really we should call upon the relevant authorities to lead on all elements of road safety to ensure the safe system and vision zero is possible and to minimise the actual chances that someone will make a mistake and to shift the blame away from the individual and back onto authorities. Claire, thank you very much. So let's conclude. What are the important questions we should be ready to ask in 2021 that can lead to improvements in how we support survivors and families affected by road traffic collisions? How do we ensure we understand the range of physical, psychological and legal needs they may have? Should we be looking much more critically at the modern criminal justice system and asking who's dealt with under that system and who continues to get away scot-free? An effective post-crash response requires integration of injury care, mental health services, legal support and legislation, and data on road traffic crashes and injuries. And we'll be covering all of those topics as this series progresses. Many thanks to my guests today, Claire Hoyland from FireAid, Cheryl Pinner from HCC, and Nick Simmons from Roadpiece. We'll be back with episode two in a fortnight, when my guests will be Ian Lewin from DTEC, David Davies from Pacts, and Max Fordell from Finland, as we consider the ongoing fight against drink and drug driving. If you found this episode of the Project Edward podcast to be interesting, please, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comment on what you've heard today, please do join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Project Edward. You can keep up to date with our road safety activity at projectedward.org. The producer was Peter Baker. I'm James Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. <laughs>